Well, we're usually talking about uh, punts and kicks and uh, offsides and wins and losses and all of these kind of things, uh, AJ, but it's good to have you on. Uh, we were just catching up for a minute here before we turned on the recording devices to actually do the podcast. And uh, it genuinely is nice to hear your voice, man. I know you've been bouncing around, traveling a whole bunch. I've been enjoying your Twitter feed uh, on your, your worldly travels and the different things that you've seen uh, in the soccer world over the last little while. So it's, it's good to have you on, man. How are you? Yeah, great. Great to be back in, in Canada after a little 12 day break uh, in, in Europe. And uh, yeah, actually going to Costa Rica next week too for, uh, nice. for the Canada, hopefully what's going to be Canada's clincher against uh, Costa Rica and world cup qualifying. So it's, it's a fun little, this is kind of the time for me to get away because once, uh, once April kicks in April to November is basically between soccer and, and, and CFL, it's uh pretty busy time for me so all good it's uh great to be with you as well marsh how much uh, have you enjoyed i don't want to say this run by the canadian men's soccer program but how much have you enjoyed them consistently oh it's the u.s at home in hamilton sure oh it's us in mexico sure oh it's it's like every time that they get a challenge they've just kind of like punched it in the face and been like no we're good like we're good enough to go like let's just finish this thing let's go yeah, it's been incredible to watch, especially because I, I've been following this team really since uh, the mid '80s. I remember when they qualified. Yeah. I was ten years old when they qualified, and and eleven when they competed uh, in the World Cup in, in Mexico. And you know, to think it's been la- that long, but just to think how different it was. Like Canada was just making up the numbers back in the 1986 World Cup. They didn't score. They obviously didn't win. And, and, and they were, you know, probably the, the worst team there. Statistically, they were the worst team there with no goals for and three losses. But uh, now it feels like, and, and, and this happened almost overnight. And I know it doesn't happen overnight, but you look at 10 years ago and losing 8-1 to Honduras and, and what was the biggest game for the Canadian men's national team really in, in at least 15 to 20 years. And, and, and then they went through a run where I think they scored like two goals in 13 games. And yeah, it was just, you had this contrast of the women who were doing so well, um, you know, and this is of course, before they won gold in, in Tokyo, but, you know, winning back-to-back medals in London and Rio and the way they did it in London, and they kind of been carrying the flag for so long. And you had this contrast where the women were top 10 in the world and, and the men were closer to a hundredth. I think at one point they were 90th in the ELO rankings, which is probably the, the more accurate set of rankings. So, so yeah, just, just to see like the, the turnaround over the course of the last three years, which pretty much coincides with Alfonso Davies joining the program. But you know, the, the fact that they were able to win three straight qualifiers without Alfonso Davies um, it, it's, it's amazing what they've done. I, I think they've made a legitimate case for themselves as the best team in the world outside of Europe and, and, and South America, which is incredible. And now it's just about finishing the job, whether it's in Costa Rica, whether it's in home at home against uh, Jamaica and Toronto and, and then, you know, see what the world cup draw brings on April 1st. And, and if they're going to have a legitimate chance to, to, to maybe make some noise in, in Qatar. 
Uh, Alfonso Davies live streaming him watching when he wasn't able to play is what is one of my favorite things that has happened in Canadian sports in like the last five years, just watching the excitement and the connection. He was doing it with his dad, I believe as well. Right. So he was, yeah, he was sitting there live streaming things and, uh, and isolating or whatnot and, and, uh, recovering as he needed to. But, um, yeah, if you want more on Canadian soccer, the men's program, women's, all the rest, follow AJ. He's got great stuff, of course, locally there in Ottawa, but of course the national team. Um, but the reason that I had you on today, and I, I mentioned this just before we came on is that when it was the Wednesday night that the first shellings and attacks started happening from Russia into Ukraine, uh, I, like many other people, kind of go into news gathering mode. Uh, I think that's natural for people like us that when there are big events, you know, whether it's Art Bryles trying to get hired by the Hamilton Tiger Cats, I'm like, okay, I need all the information because I need to make the best judgment possible and talk about things in the most level-headed way because when we go on radio, and you have to have honest discussions where there are people that are connecting with the sound of your voice every day, you can't go in uninformed. And for me, I might not be on radio anymore, but I still have that kind of like journalistic sense to me that when I saw things actually happening, I, I was glued to the coverage. And I didn't open Twitter very much, but when I did, immediately the, the passion and the honesty that you spoke with connected with me because I know you. Like we've worked around each other. We talk all the time at different events and whatnot. So that was where the idea for this podcast kind of came from, which was, I just want to talk to you honestly about what you feel, what you see, what you've heard, the things that you've been going through as a member of the CFL family and the CFL broadcasting family um, who is, is affected by this, like, and it's not that there are people who aren't, I mean, I think we all have some sort of, connection or tie to what's happening, whether we realized or not, but your background directly ties you to so many things that are troubling about the situation in Ukraine right now. So before we get into some of the, the thoughts on it, actually, and not that you need bona fides in order to have an opinion on these kind of things, but explain to people your connection, like your actual Ukrainian connection. Yeah, so uh, on my dad, I'm 50% Polish-Ukrainian. Um, you know, my mom Scandinavian and, and, and my dad's side, uh, I'm Polish Ukrainian. So uh, my great grandparents moved from uh, a place called Brody in Ukraine, which is about an hour uh, outside of Lviv, in the western part of Ukraine. Well, there's 1.5 million uh, Ukrainian Canadians, and especially the ones that moved early 20th century. Uh, the, the, most of most of the Ukrainian Canadians that that moved, especially in Western Canada, um, came from the western part of Ukraine. So um, that that was an area that uh, you know was was Galicia, a part of Austria-Hungary at the time, which included southern Poland and and Western Ukraine. But it was Austria-Hungary. I mean, this this is you know pretty good indication of why a there's so many Ukrainians that decided to move here in the first place, and b um, you know, what Ukrainians are fighting for is just, you know, their, their sordid history in the sense that, you know, just that area since they moved, it was Austria-Hungary. Then after the First World War, it was Poland. Uh, then, then after the Second World War, it was the Soviet Union. And then after the disintegration of the Soviet Union, um, it, it became Ukraine. So, and, and now they're fighting to keep it as part of Ukraine and not as, you know, some annexed country that, that is part of Russia. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've taken a, a pretty strong interest in in my heritage for, for my entire life. I mean, my grandparents, even though they were born in Canada, um, they, they, Ukrainian was their first language. And so like they spoke with an accent and, and no one with, from my family had ever been back. I mean, and I think a large part of that is because, you know, from, from the time they moved here, there, there was uh, the Holodomor, which was, was the man-made famine that, uh, was, was created by Stalin, which killed millions of people. And then after that, you had, um, you know, World War II, where, you know, first and foremost, they, they, were, they, they, were, they were in that part of the world thinking that when the Nazis came, that they came as liberators. And then when they realized that wasn't the case, um, you know, they kind of realized they were fighting against Hitler and Stalin at the same time in, the, in that part of Ukraine. And so, World War II and then, you know, the Cold War and communism and, you know, the people have been through so much there. And so finally in 2018, I, I decided to, to visit Ukraine. I was the first actually person in my family that went back. And wow. it was, uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience to the point that I went back the next year in 2019. And, and so, yeah, I spent a lot of time in Kiev. I, I spent a lot of time in Lviv. Um, and, and even went to Brody, which was, uh, again, the ancestral home of my, uh, uh, of my dad's side. So a pretty amazing experience. I, I've, I've got a few friends that, uh, that, that I met that I'm still in contact with. And I, I think the thing that struck me in, in going to these places was just how fortunate I was that, you know, my family came here. I know my great grandfather uh, stowed himself in a barrel just to, to get out of there and, and come across in a ship to, to Canada. So, and, and now here we are a hundred years, hundred years later, and it's pretty much the same thing with over 3 million refugees already. I talked to someone actually just this morning who's in Hungary and is already kind of looking at what's next in terms of her and her family and whether they're going to go to Canada, Ukraine, uh, to Australia, to, to somewhere in Europe. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it definitely hits home for me because, you know, I, I, because of my heritage and because of, you know, some of the things that have been said by Vladimir Putin about uh, just Ukrainians and, and, you know, their heritage and, and really trying to wipe Ukrainian heritage off the map. Um, it's, it's really troubling to say the least. And, and, and again, you, you add the fact like it's, it's hard to explain. I, I, I think you know, I probably didn't even take some of the other wars that were, it's not that I didn't take them seriously, but they, they didn't hit as hard in terms of personal, not just because of the fact that it's my heritage, but also just, this is the first place I've ever been where I walk the streets and then all of a sudden you see pictures of bombs going on on these streets after the fact. So it's, it's, a, it's a really strange and surreal thing to, to, to kind of witness, to know that I was in Kiev three, four years ago, and it was a really safe. I remember when I first went to Eastern Europe, like I started putting my wallet in my front pocket and all that type of stuff. And after a few days there, I started to realize it's every bit of safe, if not safer than, than being back home. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really been hard to watch these last few weeks and kind of a combination of uh, horrified by, by what you see in terms of the bombings of, of civilians, scared for what's going to happen next, you know, hope in terms of, you know, 
just what's happened in terms of the international community and, you know, a little bit of hope of maybe, uh, you know, things disintegrating uh, before Putin and maybe seeing a palace coup and, you know, wh whether that's false hope or not, I don't know. And, and then I think that the biggest one is just inspired. I, I'm just completely inspired. And I think the world has been inspired by, you know, these, these pictures of, and, and videos of grandmothers and grandfathers standing up unarmed to, to Russian soldiers and places where, you know, the Russians have, have captured cities and, and people still going out en masse and, and protesting and, you know, saying that this is Ukrainian land, not Russian land. And, and these are areas, I mean, you look at Kherson, you look at uh, Mariupol, you look at Kharkiv, uh, you know, these are areas in the east where, you know, I think they thought they were going to come and be welcomed as liberators because, you know, this is an area with a lot of ethnic Russians, an area where Russian speakers dominate. This is not Western Ukraine where it's dominated by kind of Ukrainian speakers. And, and so I, I think, you know, the, the fact that people are uniting, whether they're Russian speakers, ethnic Russians or, or Ukrainian speakers, ethnic Ukrainians across the country goes to show A, you know, how inspiring is, this is, but also B, what's at stake here. And this isn't about the language or, or the culture or anything like that. It is to a certain degree, but it's, it's more about, um, you know, the, the view for what they're hoping to, to experience. And, and that's a better future and one that involves democracy, one that involves freedom. And yeah, I, mean, I remember being in the Maiden Square, which is where a lot of, you know, where, where all the protests in 2013 and 2014 happened in Kyiv where millions of people came. I talked to numerous people that, that, that were involved in the protests and, and were there. And, you know, there was a sign on the building that said, freedom is our, our religion. And, and I think that goes to show exactly what they're fighting for. And they're not only fighting for themselves. Uh, I think a lot of people have realized they're fighting for us. And, and this is the front line of the war on, on de democracy right now. And they're fighting for the entire Western world right now. And, while it's horrifying and, and, and scary, it's also very inspiring what these people are doing right now. Yeah, it's, man, that's such a great answer by you in, in so many different layers, because um, the first thing that kind of came to mind for me as you're talking about that and the idea of the geography of the region and being in a part where it's named different things, it's owned by different people. It's, it's almost like to me in global politics, because I studied political science at university, the idea of Turkey being right in the middle of where it's like, Middle East, Europe, otherwise refugees coming from every different place, depending on where the conflicts are. And it's like, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, their fault for being in this region. It's the reality of the region. And all that they can do is defend what they believe in and defending what they believe is right. And that's what they're doing. And that's why I find it so inspiring. The other thing that came to mind is uh, John Amici, former NBA player, who's a bit of a philosopher, English guy. Um, he has this this great quote that stuck with me a long time ago because he educates people on the idea of privilege. Uh, and when he was talking about George Floyd and all of these things, I was listening to some podcasts and he said, privilege is simply this for anybody who says, I don't understand why you say I have white privilege. I don't understand why you say it's a privilege to live in Canada or why living in a democracy is a privilege. He said, privilege is the, uh, the absence of impediment. And when I hear you discussing the ability of Ukrainian people to move freely through their own agency, live their lives properly before some of these things started to creep their way in, 
it's like that they, you might not realize that at that moment because you take it for granted that's a privilege to live in a country in Canada where I've grown up my entire life knowing it as Canada not having to guess who's going to try and attack from which direction or where or how or like that is a privilege but I've always just taken that for granted and now seeing this conflict for the first time in my life because yeah I went through school and I read about all these different wars and conflicts and but to see it happening in real time you know I obviously there was Afghanistan there was Iraq there's uh, things that have happened in the Middle East over a long period of time there's been uh, various uh, I don't want to call them smaller military events but all over the world but to see it happening as I'm an adult and also this is the first major conflict that I've ever seen as a dad uh, seeing that happening and all coming together at once, that to me really set in the idea of privilege. And you, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but for me, I put myself in the mindset of, okay, let's say Canada was Ukraine and these things start happening. Would I actually be able to respond the way these Ukrainian people have? Because the inspiration that I've drawn from it is I want to believe that I would fight and die for anything regarding my family, my country, my land, what I believe in, my language, my culture. But man, until you're in that moment, you don't know. And they're doing it. And they're doing it en masse. And that's the thing that I find incredible about all of this. Yeah. And uh, I mean, a couple things on that. I mean, I read a book called from Timothy Snyder called Bloodlands. And it's an excellent book. It's about 1933 to 1945 just in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of, hey, it's just the reality is of where they are, right? And the Bloodlands is, is, is an area between Russia and Germany. And, and you know, it, it was talking about World War II, but, you know, it, it exists right now. An area between Russia and Germany where, you know, for a 12-year period, more people died in that area than any area on the planet before or since. Um, you know, and that that's Poland, most of it happened in Poland, Ukraine, and Belarus, but also it involved the Baltic countries as well. And that's why you see, like, part of the reason you see, like, I went to a protest here um, that, that started at the Russian embassy and, and ended at Ottawa City Hall. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of Ukrainian flags, but it was amazing to see the amount of Polish, like Estonian, Latvian, Lithuanian, uh, and and Belarusian flags, and when I said but say Belarusian flags, I mean the white and red ones, not the the ones used by the country right now. And the white and red ones were the ones used in the protests in Belarus. And and I haven't been to Russia, but I have I've been to all of those other places. I you know Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And in in Belarus and Ukraine, because, you know, the other four countries are all part of the EU, the other four countries are all part, part of NATO, and, and they're on the front line of this because they all border uh, Russia, um, Poland borders it in Kaliningrad, but, uh, and, and Lithuania as well, uh, and the other two countries directly border on mainland Russia, so they, they understand what's at stake, and you, you saw that at those, those protests, but, um, it was amazing to see just being in Ukraine and, and Belarus um, and, and, and seeing the difference, right? Because Ukraine had fought against this and, and it probably paid the price. And I left Ukraine and Belarus in 2018, wondering to myself, even though in my mind, I thought Ukrainians 
had, had done the right thing. Not that the Belarusians had done the right thing. I mean, they've shown they, they, they've been willing to, to go out and protest against Lukashenko. And unfortunately for them, you know, that got squashed. And, and basically Belarus is, for all intents and purposes, an annexed version of Russia right now, which is why Ukrainians don't want to be a part of that. And But I left Belarus and, and Ukraine in 2018 seriously asking the question, what was the better way to do it? Um, you know, because it's easy to sit back and say, well, Ukrainians did things the right way. And, and, and that was the better way to do it was to, to fight and, and to deal with this. But they're the ones dying in, in the thousands right now, whereas Belarusians, they've lost their freedom, but at least, you know, they have peace in their cities. They're not getting bombed. And so um, I, I believe the answer is, you know, what Ukraine has done, but it, it's, it's a little more complicated when you're there and, 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 and leaving there. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it, it was a fascinating time for me and, and, you know, going to those places. And it really made me think a lot about how fortunate I was that again, that my great grandparents decided to, to come to Canada it, that, you know, there were feelings of guilt as well, because, you know, I, I there's no doubt I, I grew up in suburban Edmonton and, you know, I've had a great life. I haven't had too much to worry about in terms of my safety, my security, food on the table, all that sort of thing. And, you know, while for the most part, I think, you know, it's, you wouldn't call Belarus or Ukraine or anything at the best of times, a third world country. Um, it, it's, it's relatively developed, but certainly not anywhere near to the standard of living here in Canada for the masses. I mean, rich people live like rich people for sure. And the upper middle class can live pretty well there, but you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's a humble, I, I wouldn't say it's a, it, it's a, a bad way of life, but it's a very humble way of life for millions of people in these countries. And so I feel very fortunate there, there definitely was a little bit of guilt in the sense that, you know, I was able to escape and my family was able to escape. I mean, I might not be here. One in three were killed in, in, in Belarus during World War II, one in four in Ukraine and, and one in four, I think it was either one in four or one in five in Poland. And when you're Polish Ukrainian, you realize that, hey, you know what, my, my number in terms of, you know, my grandparents, they might not have lived through that, right? So I might not be here yeah. if not for the courage of, you know, my, my ancestors who decided to come to Canada. So yeah, a lot to chew on for sure. And um, certainly, Certainly, they're dealing with uh, with issues uh, a lot greater than ours. But but again, if if this isn't stopped here in Ukraine, who's to say that you know it's not going to land on our doorstep next? Whether it's you know EU or, or NATO countries, or or it comes to Western Europe or even North America. So it's it's a real scary time, certainly for them. But I think it's a real scary time for the entire world right now. How do you digest the the daily news? that is coming out of Ukraine as somebody who has the connection points, who has walked the streets, who understands the culture, who understands the people, certainly better than I do. I see that come across the timeline and it could be any of a variety of different things. It could be Russian tanks left behind and Ukrainian uh, farmers dragging them away with their tractors. And it's like, I want to laugh at that because that's badass. But I'm like, there's still tanks there, man. Like I, like I, it's hard for me to be able. And so my perspective on this is, you know, that's interesting. But then the next one is, well, there's a, uh, you know, a theater in Mariupol, I believe is how you said you pronounce it. Um, that there's children in there and they write kids 
on the pavement outside so that the Russians won't bomb it. Well, they bomb it. it. It's like, I see these things, but I don't have the connection points that you do. And in the social media culture where you can refresh and constantly be getting updates 24 hours a day around the clock, how do you how do you deal with consuming those things? Because a social media war where there's Russians posting TikToks on the front lines of rockets being sent into Ukraine, it's strange as hell. Like, I, I don't know how else to put it because I've never seen really anything like it before, but I don't have that connection that you do. Yeah, I think the first week in particular was really tough, like um, really, really difficult. And it was kind of like I was I was basically for 15 hours a day um, taking it all in, sleeping five hours a day, working working the radio show and, and beyond that kind of spending the rest of the time, you know, between Twitter, um, you know, messaging with friends. And I've spent a lot of time on telegram, which is where I get a lot of my information as well. Uh, one of my Ukrainian friends hooked me up with, uh, with some pretty good uh, information on there. So spent a lot of time on there, but you know, it was actually good. I ended up, you know, I had a pre-planned vacation with my, my girlfriend to Europe. And so we, uh, we just got back from 12 days, Spain, Portugal, and, and a night in Dublin. And, and it actually really helped me because I was worried, like we're at Pearson airport and I'm reading about, you know, this is basically two weeks ago. And, you know, so the, the week, the, the war was about a week old and still very fresh and and you know you're you're watching about the the attacks the attacks just on on the nuclear plant and you're kind of wondering like what are we getting into here what are, yeah. are we going to go over there is there going to be a nuclear accident and it's going to affect all of europe and like should we even be going and you know by the time we got to europe it was it was good because I, you know, kind of settled into a bit of a routine, which I'm kind of settling into now that I'm back, which is, you know, it's not healthy to be consuming this stuff 24 seven. So yeah, just kind of finding a way to kind of consume it the the best way possible, which is, you know, live your life and every few hours kind of go back and see the, the main bullet points of what's going on from, you know, a few, there's about 10 or 12 people that I make sure that I go and, follow their Twitter and just see everything that they're tweeting and then, you know, kind of go about my day a little bit. So it, it's, you know, again, like different things, the, those four things I mentioned before, you know, there, there's certain tweets or things on telegram that um, inspire me. Like you said, those, those shots of the, the farmers, um, you know, towing away equipment, the shots of, you know, unarmed people standing up to soldiers and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and then there's, you know, the things that give you hope, which is when, when you see and, and you hate, you hate to think this way, but it's the reality because you, you want Ukraine to win. You want Russia to lose. So when I see columns of tanks getting blown up, when I see, um, you know, people, uh, stories of Russian you know, soldiers turning themselves in or mutiny stories, uh, whether they're true or not, you, you know, again, it's, it's so hard to know what to believe in certain cases. So, um, so those give you a little bit of hope, but then, yeah, there's the scary stuff, 
and certainly Putin, I, I think, is, is trying to scare not just Ukraine, but scare the West into capitulation whenever, you know, the, the nuclear talk comes up. And, and then you've got, you know, the stuff that's horrifying, which is what you see on civilians. And yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it either. I think it's Mary, Mariupol. I, I mean, uh, I actually saw them their soccer team play against Dinamo Kiev. <laughs> of course Kiev, you did. So, but I, I, I don't know how to pronounce it. I know it's Kharkiv, uh, and that's another place that, you know, has just been bombed uh, to, to rubble. I mean, you, you see what's going on in Mariupol and, and Kharkiv and, and a couple of Volnovako was a town that, that just got leveled. And, you know, I've been to about 20 World War II museums and a lot of them in Eastern Europe from, you know, in, in Poland and Ukraine and Belarus and in Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia, um, not to mention parts of Western Europe, but you see these videos and it looks like Stalingrad. It looks like Warsaw. It looks like, you know, these places in World War II that you thought, uh, at least I thought naively, we'd never see again in, in the Western world. And and here we are, we're seeing it, right? And, and so, yeah, it's... Uh, it's horrible to watch. And again, I think it's changed my view. Not that I didn't think war was horrible, but it's, it's even changed my view in terms of appreciating war in far flung places that I haven't been that, you know, whether it's Rwanda, whether it's Syria, whether it's Myanmar, right? I mean, it's, it's changed my viewpoint in terms of how awful this is. I mean, not that I didn't think it was awful, but I think, you know, what I'm getting at here is just how, you know, we're in 2022 and we, we lived through 75 plus years for the most part in the Western world without this. But, you know, there are parts of the developed world and parts of the third world where this continues to be a, a problem. And, and, you know, to me, that's unacceptable in today's day and age, given what we know. And it's it's scary stuff and it's it's tough to consume. But you know, sadly, I feel like I'm kind of getting used to it three weeks in and kind of finding a way, a routine to, to kind of digest all of this horrible news on a daily basis. Yeah, when you mentioned Rwanda there, just I had to look it up uh, impolitely as we're standing here. But um, I, I read a book that I think a lot of the feelings from what you're discussing of it making you more aware about things that are further away and uh, I read when I was in, I think I was in high school, it would have been early high school, The Lion, the Fox and the Eagle, a story of general, yeah. generals and justice in Rwanda and Yugoslavia. And as a young, again, I had interest in politics and global conflict and things like this throughout university. It's why I did poli sci, but it was also, I read that in high school well before I ever decided that that was my lane for studying. And the Romeo Dallaire story and the story of Canadian peacekeepers and going in and being in different parts of the world and putting themselves in danger and having to fly under the cover of night into places. And then, uh, you know, you're getting shot at as you're trying to land because you control the airport. But it's just, I remember reading that and thinking, I don't even understand that because I've never had to go through anything that's remotely similar to it. So uh, yeah, it certainly puts things into to perspective and to bring it back to, to international football as well. Like, seeing Putin holding a pro-war rally like you're talking about it's at Luzhniki Stadium right which is where the 2018 World Cup final was yeah. and and like you mentioned the places that you perhaps naively I think I'm the same thought oh we won't see this again we've moved past these things you take those side-by-side -side images 
of places from the late 1930s, early 1940s in Europe that are just obliterated and photos of similar things in Ukraine that are the exact same buildings that are blown up side by side. If you make one of those photos, the modern one, black and white, and you put it side by side, it's the same thing. It's, yeah. the, it's the exact same thing. And when I'm watching, you know, I, I caught a clip of Putin speaking at this pro-war rally with whatever, 80,000 people, something like that, you know, a bunch of people brainwashed by the state because that's what it is and state television and all the rest. And I'm thinking, man, if you put that in black and white and you put that side by side with any dictator in history speaking at large stadiums, it's the same shit. Like, it's just the exact same shit. That's how, And it's it really does, I think, make it more relevant to the people who think other side of the world, whatever, we've moved on. It's look at all those old pictures I read about in textbooks from 100 years ago, 75 years, whatever. And then it's like, no, let me put this side by side, put it in black and white and tell you that it's happening today. And that's, that's where I think, and again, not to, you know, be sensationalistic about it, but that's where these things connect for me. And, um, and it's just amazing to think that an event like that could even be happening, considering the atrocities that are, that are going on in Ukraine. And sport has played a, a giant role in terms of propaganda for Russia. Yep. And, and, and it's probably... And again, it's probably changed my viewpoint. I've always kind of known that sport washing was bad, but it's probably changed my viewpoint to the point where I I truly understand how, how scary it is. Right. And just, uh, you know, the, the Ovechkin stuff, it it pains me because I've loved watching him play. I've, Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've had such a great respect for him. Uh, in, in terms of, you know, I think he's been great for the National Hockey League. And here he is, you know, for, for the last eight years, he's been on Team Putin. But that's that's how I feel sorry for him because I, I that's basically what these athletes have been trained to do from, from the time that, that they left Russia is they, they have been kind of brought along to go out on the international stage and bring glory back to to mother russia and it's not like it doesn't happen everywhere but when you've got you know a leader like putin doing what he is doing right now um and and you know he's been doing bad things for 20 years whether it's georgia whether it's chechnya whether it's you know whatever killing killing nemsov or poisoning Navalny or all the different uh, politicians, anyone that's been a threat to him, right? I mean, there's a lot of bad things that have added up, but this is, you know, something that has made him a pariah on the, on the world stage. Unlike really anything we've seen in modern times, really the, the closest thing you can say would, would be apartheid era South Africa um, when, you know, they weren't allowed to compete in Olympic games and, you know, just from a sporting standpoint, mm-hmm. right? But right, Russia has been completely excluded from international sport and you know to, to see Alex Ovechkin I don't expect him to come out and condemn Putin I know there's a lot of Ukrainians and a lot of even Russians that are, are westernized that that believe he absolutely should but you know the Instagram picture that's still up to me you know that that's that's a pretty tough one to swallow I mean if yeah. it's it's very similar to if you had after World War II and yet and I get international athletes weren't as integrated back then but imagine you know if they were and you had a german 
baseball player in major league baseball that had their picture up and it was with them and Hitler and, and they refused to take it down. Right. I mean, that that's essentially what we're seeing right now. So yeah, I mean, the sport washing conversation is a long one. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. yeah I th- it's, and I think the important distinction on it too, is that, you know, there's been this conversation lately of, well, there's been sanctions on all things that are Russian, therefore all Russians are bad. And it's like, well, no, that's not what people are saying. Yeah. If, if you know somebody who's down the street, who's a Russian, they're not a bad person being able to, uh, you know, believe in their country in the good of their country. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's the idea that Alexander Ovechkin has been overtly in support of the man who has created a a war, a deadly war unnecessarily. And the idea that uh, he not only has basically ignored his, his role to be played in this as a prominent Russian figure in the United States, but he is actively bucking against the idea of putting out a statement, trying to do anything, not even condemn it. Just listen, I understand my situation in the global economy of sport and politics and that everybody looks to me. Um, here's my thoughts. on It's just, he's just totally, he's like, I, I want nothing to do with it. I'm a hockey player. That's what it is. And it's, that's, I think the difficult thing for me is that I, I think athletes do. And again, I know this is a longer conversation. I got to get you out of here, but I, I do think that athletes have the ability to create real change with their platform. I've always believed that. And we've seen hundreds and hundreds of examples of that being the example. And I'm not saying that Alexander Ovechkin could shut things down and make the war stop and make Putin stop doing what he's doing. He would just be penalizing himself by taking the stand. But the braveness of the people that are protesting the war in Moscow that are being arrested, they're doing that. Alexander Ovechkin has the freedom and the safety of living in the United States. He's a millionaire, parks his Lamborghini wherever he wants, throws. I've literally seen his car in front of where the Caps play when I was in Washington, D.C., thrown sideways into a parking spot and just left like he had thrown the keys. Like he's got freedom of all freedoms in the place that he is. And he can't even put out a strong statement like that. That to me is is extremely damning. And like you say, a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. And I mean, just the athlete stuff, right. If, if he had just been just an athlete and hadn't been a part of team Putin and really tried to get other people involved and, you know, like he's been active in this for years. And so to now say he's just an athlete, I mean, yeah, again, I get it's complicated. I understand that there's a lot of people that have come down with, with a lot more harsh, like Slava Malamud has been really harsh on him. And I, yep. that, that's someone that grew up in the Soviet Union and, and uh, escaped and, and knows, you know, Russia intimately. So I take his opinion over my opinion, and he's been really harsh on Alex Ovechkin. Um, I, I haven't been as harsh, but it, it pains me. It pains me what's happened here. I, my, my line has been, it's never too late to be on the right side of history. There are some people that might never forgive him, but, you know, Russia needs heroes right now because that's how this is going to stop. And it's going to stop with, you know, the elites in Russia or, you know, some sort of palace coup saying, you know, no, this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't happening. And so um, I, I, that, that's what I'm hoping for. I, I have no idea whether that's going to happen or not. That's, that's mainly what I read these days. Is, is stories like that on the possibility of a palace coup, the possibility of, of people rising up against, uh, against Russia. But 
the, the people that I follow that I read seem to think that the possibility of hundreds of thousands going on to the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg to the same degree that we've seen, you know, in the last, like two years ago with the, uh, the protests against Lukashenko in, in, in Belarus, or before that, the, the Maiden revolution in Kiev, uh, they don't seem to think it's very likely. So, um, but I mean, how, how impactful would that be? He is, he is the kind of the crown jewel of Russian athletes. I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, especially certainly when it comes to team sports, yeah. when it comes to basketball, when it comes to soccer, there's not a lot of prominent Russian athletes playing abroad. So hockey is, is kind of, and, and that's Putin's sport. That that's Putin. We've, we've seen the videos of Putin playing hockey. Same with Lukashenko in, in Belarus. I mean, when I was in Belarus, I was led around, you know, by a former KHL player that that played hockey once a week with with Lukashenko, um, and, and so, you know, like the again, sport is viewed as um, you know something that's very important, and and we saw that with with the the scandal in terms of the Olympics and in Sochi and and you know how basically they 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 don't mind going out and, and cheating. It's, it's a state-sponsored thing. It's just about, you know, hey, if they get caught, then, well, it's, it's almost viewed as if, oh, well, you're just punishing Russia. You're anti-Russia, right? And mm-hmm. so everything seems to be Russia against the world, you know, emanating from, from the Kremlin. And like you said, uh, it's, it's sad because I know, I know a lot of Russian people and, you know, I've met a lot of good Russian people that, that I, I'm sure don't support this, but it, it is scary to see just how many, Russians do seemingly support the war and um, you know I, I, I don't know I don't really hold out a lot of hope that you know we're going to see hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg um, protesting against this. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, AJ, thank you for the time. Thank you for the the honesty and the perspective and everything else. I know it's, uh, it's a little off the beaten path for anybody who usually tunes into our football podcast here but um, you are uh, you're extremely well understood uh, when it comes to this subject and educated on all of it. So thank you for sharing it all with us. Yeah, my pleasure, Marshall. And uh, looking forward to what is it? Uh, how many how many weeks left before training camp? <laughs> I was actually looking at the calendar this morning. It's funny because I was thinking back to when Masoli would come in with the tie cats, and I was doing radio for eleven fifty, and you were on twelve hundred, and. I, you know, I would do the pregame segment uh, on 1200 and drop in and I'd say, you know, when Masoli's on, he's as good as anybody in the league. And I would get laughed out of that radio booth, but people going that uh, Masoli's not going to get it done. What the hell are you talking? And now I laugh because I go, Hey, he's yours guys. Now you get to talk about him all the time. That'll be a fun <laughs> summer. Yeah. You know what? I'm just excited. It's uh, I, I think uh, Sean Burke, who obviously you would know quite well has done an excellent job and, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, there's, you know, still some questions for me a little bit on the offensive line, but uh, I, I think uh, beyond, beyond that um, I, I like what they've done basically. And, and I, I do like what they've done in terms of off the old line as well, just in terms of a couple of guys that have come in that have injury histories and whatever, and especially in a year last year where they couldn't stay healthy on the old line, but uh, no, I, I like what they've done basically everywhere on, on the field. Now it's just a matter of, the coaching staff putting these guys together and giving them a chance to succeed. So I think the East is going to be a lot of fun next year because 
Hamilton, I still think is the favorite, but you know, it would, it wouldn't surprise me if at the end of the year you said, okay, this is your regular season champion. You, this is your, your East division representative in the gray cup. And if you told me it was Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, Hamilton, it wouldn't surprise me in the least if it's either of the four, I think it's going to be wide open. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait. There you go. In-depth analysis on the East division and Ukraine. Nobody saw that one coming. <laughs> uh, follow him on social media at the super AJ is where you can find him. We'll talk again soon. Thanks brother. All right. Cheers, Marsh.